0: Welcome everyone to our latest edition of the Reimagining Mobility podcast series. I'm here with Brian Moran from our California Tech Center. He's a chief engineer there for us for many years now. And Brian, today, I wanna talk a little bit about the industry specifically related to to batteries. Uh, First, kinda give me your general view. You know, what are the challenges today? Where do you see solutions coming up in the future? And then I want to sort of transitioning over a little bit into uh, our very exciting program that we've done uh, for the aerospace industry and soon going into space then as well. So I want to kind of transition over that. But first of all, batteries, we've done lots of them in California. We oftentimes do very advanced type uh, battery type technologies or programs. So tell me a little bit where do you see on a, on a high level the battery technologies are today? with the challenges and where do you see it going into the future?
1: Yeah, certainly, I mean, um, we all have to take it with a grain of salt where where batteries are uh, today compared to where they were in the past, you know? I mean, um, I can remember a day, you know, when a 40-mile electric vehicle was actually pretty darn good <laughs> and you were, you were slinging lead acid uh, around and, uh, you know, hoping that uh, you'd get a, a few hundred cycles at most, you know, so, We've exceeded those boundaries um, quite uh, ham- handsomely. Um, I actually uh, think that at least on the automotive side, obviously uh, cost and integration is is, is the king there. Um, we're sort of in the uh, performance wars right now. You know, we've seen you know with with Tesla setting new boundaries on on performance. There's been a lot of uh, focus in on uh, zero to sixty times and uh, top speed and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we're going to be entering an era here pretty soon where it's the baseline vehicle. Um, you know, not everybody can afford a seventy-five to $100,000 uh, vehicle. Um, you know, so you're seeing uh, companies, um, you know, like uh, BYD coming out with uh, uh, kind of uh, I don't want to say uh, muted uh, technologies, but more uh, for the for the everyman, you know, uh, kind of like LFP type chemistries. Um, it's about uh, large volume production. Um, it's about uh, ease of, of of packaging and safety, um, as well as uh, getting just the cost per kilowatt hour down, the volume down, uh, because uh, for electrification to really make a dent. Uh, in the market, it's gotta be affordable for everyone. So I think that um, while the trends are, will still continue to be more power, more energy, um, I think it is more the practical aspects of uh, integration, safety, and cost that are still mm-hmm. gonna be the king. So yeah. uh, on the are automotive you... side, for sure.
0: Sure. You you mentioned an interesting thing, right? The The race for whatever, EVs that can go faster and faster from zero to 60. I mean, we've seen it first with Tesla and it's frankly, extremely cool and fun to drive. We've seen it with Lucid that has one that's very fast as well. We see it with a company like GM, for example, even with the Hummer, right? Right. A heavier vehicle that still has a tremendous acceleration. We see it with the Ford Lightning pickup truck now, Mm -hmm. uh, very fast uh, from zero to 60 as well. do you see an end to that? Is this just, we're trying initially, the OEMs are trying to make an EV cool. Is this something that ultimately we're gonna compete on or we ultimately coming back to what you just mentioned, more the EV for whatever, the middle class, let's say, and also something that's much more affordable, but also not necessarily give you 500 miles, but more reasonable, maybe three to 400 miles or something. Where do you see that going?
1: Yeah, I've had this dilemma, actually, for a long time, because, you know, as I mentioned, you know, it, it's all about expectations. Um, you know, uh, in around 2016, the Chevy Bolt, for example, came out uh, uh-huh. with a 200 mile car. That was quite an, an achievement. You know, 200 miles uh, was achieved. Uh, the Tesla Model 3, that was supposed to be the promise. That was supposed to be a, a thirty five thousand dollar car when you, um, when you looked at what happened there and uh, go try to get a thirty five thousand dollar model uh, three these days and it just simply doesn't exist. So, um, I think that, uh, it's a bit of a halo effect with the performance numbers. I think it's still a retraining effect on the public, um, as you become an EV owner, uh, somewhere around, uh, 250 to 300 miles is quite a, a a sweet spot as a, as an EV owner myself. Um, I rarely, uh, take uh, trips that are over uh, 200 miles in a day. Uh, I think that as infrastructure improves on the charging side of things, uh, when folks can go out into the world and have that confidence that wherever they're at, uh, there'll be a charger. Mm -hmm. Um, I know uh, from, you know, the old days, how many times have you uh, pulled out of the garage with the, with the low fuel light on in your vehicle and you're like, ah, well, I'll take care of that a little bit later. Right. And that's only <laughs> just because you have the confidence that there's a fueling station, you know, at at every at every corner. Um, yeah. I actually uh, thought of a, a key indicator would be out there. Um, you know, in the end, you know, the fueling infrastructure is a little bit more of a real estate business than an en- energy business. You know, its location mm-hmm. um, that you would start to see uh, pumps getting slowly but surely replaced by by fast chargers. And uh, out here in California, I've actually seen a couple of instances of that where um, maybe not on the primary pump island, but now over by the air compressor machine, you'll find sure. tucked in the back <laughs> like they're trying to be sly about it. That there's a, a, a fast charge station there. Um, so uh, I, I see some of as some of the rest of the world sort of adjusts. Um, I think you'll start seeing um, where, uh, you know, a two to three hundred mile car. For most intents and purposes for for getting around is it uh, is probably good enough, and that you may actually start to see vehicle manufacturers offering uh, vehicles with different capacities uh, of batteries. Um, you know the lucid the lucid Air Dream Edition, for example, achieved something, and I think it was interesting because um, while they're also a very fast high performance vehicle, as you mentioned, um, they also achieved another goal, which was the 500-mile range. Right, um, right. They uh, – I don't want to call it a publicity stunt, but it was a publicity stunt. They went from L.A. to San Francisco in in one trip, which is quite uh, remarkable. Yeah, yeah uh, sure. So maybe in the future here very soon, you uh, go to the dealership and uh, you negotiate your battery pack size. Uh, so I think that's a challenge for us in the engineering world uh-huh. to make that flexibility. Um batteries are a little bit bespoke you know these these days The uh, they they're built to fit that envelope of that, that particular make model of vehicle um i still think there's a lot of um, structural changes that can be made through standardization um we're seeing um a ship slowly but surely over to purpose-built vehicles that are electric now uh i'm not sure if you were uh familiar with the term compliance car So, you know, back in, uh, let's say, 2010 to 2015 era, uh, you saw compliance cars. Compliance cars were usually small uh, economy vehicles that um, more or less just checked a box for the OEMs uh, in their offering. They were uh, based on an internal combustion engine vehicle, which meant that the packaging was centered around uh, an engine transmission uh, driveline and exhaust which is somewhat uh limiting when it comes to uh electrification but now we're seeing purpose built vehicles uh you know the lucid the, the the tesla vehicles are are perfect examples the id uh vehicles from vw uh so things are moving around there's enough commitment from the industry now to redo the body and white and all the other things that uh that, that make that that battery up so um I'd like to see, you know, uh, flexible battery pack sizes. Uh, maybe foam inserts in the battery to to reduce it, you know, to meet your budget. You know, if it, if it's uh-huh. a commuter car, 200 miles is fine. You know, you're talking four or five thousand dollars savings on the sticker price of the car from from that, right? But are we're not there yet.
0: Are you a proponent then, so to speak, personally, of let's say what neo does, which is more focused on battery swapping?
1: Um, not so much. I think that when you practically look at what's involved with, um, swapping out a battery, um, the infrastructure and again, real estate required, um, uh, I think it's a, it, it's a nice idea. Uh, but, um, I think that just the practical nature is that the world will push that back. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right, if we, if we dive now a little bit into more of the technology side that you're certainly heavily involved with, and let's say, go outside of automotive. I know you're, a, you're an avid mountain biker. I assume you don't have a battery on your mountain bike, but maybe you do. But you have batteries nowadays on lots of different, let's say, mobility devices, right? And again, we've talked about it before now on cars, heavy-duty trucks, off-road equipment, Machinery, uh, airplanes, uh, ships—you name it. It goes on and on and on. But let's talk a little bit about aviation and and what it means to put a battery with its controls, with its safety features, with its many times probably weight constraints and and more much more additional requirements than what you have on a on a ground vehicle into production or into a product that then actually also takes flight. Tell me a little bit from a technical side where we are. Very brief of where we are today, but where do we need to get to over the next several years to make that technology even more viable for a widespread adoption in the aviation space?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that's the uh, probably single biggest opportunity in transportation in many decades to transition electric uh, transition to electric flight um there's certainly some overriding challenges above and beyond what automotive is is requiring you know namely uh the safety aspect you no longer have the uh, luxury of uh safely pulling over to the side of the road um if you're out of energy um number 2 is the weight aspect of uh of flight it's uh, obviously very weight sensitive and i think that there is the other uh aspect uh, the commercial aspect of flight that is quite different from your typical passenger vehicle, or even commercial truck. Uh, most of the uh, uh, market, in, in, at least in light-duty automotive, is uh, not driven by economics. It's dri- driven more by uh, sentiment and um, uh, uh, feelings uh, uh, about what type of product a person associates themselves with. Um, aviation is a much more commercial endeavor. So uh, in order for it to be successful, uh, literally, to get off the ground, it has to be commercially viable, right? Um, so those are all challenges that are are compounded to uh, be overcome and unseat the incumbent technology, which is um, uh, in it fossil fueled in internal, external combustion, whatever you want to to call it. So those challenges are all intersecting in the uh, aviation space, um, but that's honestly the exciting part. That's what we do. Uh, in uh, companies, just like ABL, is overcome um, those obstacles, um, and the steps are being made. Obviously, um, you know, with the first flight of the aviation, that was one step towards a uh, a, a commercial product. Uh, we know that the shortcomings of cost and weight are there. Uh, the low hanging fruit is being investigated. Um, we're looking at light weighting. We're looking at improved. Uh, thermal uh, capabilities to uh, reduce the the, the uh, weight associated with the thermal. Um, I see a huge opportunity in the uh, increase in the voltage uh, that's that's required. Um, you know, I've, I've always had a rule of, of thumb anytime you're um, exceeding uh, about 500 amps any place in a system. Uh, you're probably wanting to go up in voltages at some point, <laughs> at least somewhere to get that back down underneath the the, the 500 ampere uh, level. And we're well above that right now uh, with the technology. Um, you know, most automotive applications are still in the 350 to 400 volt trucking and the 650 to 900 volt. Um, this first step into aviation is uh, getting up there into the uh, seven to 900 volt. I personally think that we're going to have to step into the kilovolt range. You know, we're talking 1.3 to 2.5 uh, kilovolt. You start to get some interesting challenges with that. Um, you know, you don't, you don't walk around and look at stuff sub power substations that run hundreds of thousands of volts where everything's packed in tightly together. Right. There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those types of, um, of issues are uh, are going to occur in the aviation as they strive to push higher voltages to be able to um, reduce weight and increase power density. So, okay. um, yes, I, I think we're on the road to that. Just just beginning there. Obviously, the chemistry uh, battery chemistries that are needed uh, to come down the line. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, solid state technology, uh, lithium sulfur uh, uh, sodium chloride additives, all these things, um, are, are, are hopefully, you know, 10, 30, 20, 30%, uh, improvements. Um, you know, the aviation industry likely needs something like a, a 50 to a hundred percent improvement over where we're at now to be able to make a viable, um, uh, aviation product. But, mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned, we were back at lead acid, 40 mile cars, uh, <laughs> only about 15 years ago. So uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see where we're at in 15 years from now for, for aviation. Uh,
0: tell me a little bit about what your view is. Everybody talks about how the criticality, certainly in the in the passenger vehicle space, right? We hear it and, and we hear it specifically for inverter as it relates to silicon carbide technology. Important for aviation or not that important for aviation?
1: Um, I believe it's important. I mean, obviously every... Uh, every ounce of weight and every uh watt hour of energy that can be recovered would will be done so in mm-hmm. in irrigation um, I, it's a process of what i call shaving triangles you know we're doing that all the time you know you look at uh uh two uh two parameters in any given system and you're you're, you're basically shaving small triangles and uh what's left over on the on the floor is the savings right uh, silicon carbide technology is is one of those kind of steps. Um, it'll it'll be done simply because uh, the industry is making it uh, commercially possible for for that to be done. But I don't think that um, at the moment the silicon carbide is necessarily the primary enabler. Uh, there are some advantages in silicon carbide to the higher voltage aspect, uh, which is potentially a game-changer there. But I believe that that technology is sufficiently mature al- already to uh, to begin implementation. Um, the next generation of uh, technology that may be uh, on the radar for uh, the aviation is the uh, gallium arsenide uh, 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 solution for the power switch. Uh, we're seeing this in the uh, smaller accessory drives, uh, char- onboard chargers, DC-DC converters, um, they have uh, a similar, if not better, switching characteristic than the silicon carbide, but are somewhat limited in their um, uh, scale uh, ability to scale up in size and voltage. But I think there's a number of companies um, we've been looking into that are um, starting to make some headways there. Uh, and I think that at some point, uh, the silicon carbide may actually be uh, leapfrogged once mm-hmm. the, those fundamental... Uh, uh aspects are 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 figured out basically
0: okay maybe the last question you work heavily also with the team in california for us on stationary power systems and mainly on fuel cell based or hydrogen based using a fuel cell to generate electricity you don't either store it in a battery or directly then power a Uh, A backup grid, a a IT department, an entire building, whatever it might be, stationary powers, power systems, right? What about hydrogen or fuel cells for the aerospace instead of purely battery, purely electric? How about using essentially an onboard generator that is a hydrogen based fuel cell generator? What about that for aerospace? What's your view there?
1: Um, I, I actually think that uh, for the aerospace that likely, uh, again, there would uh, potentially be a leapfrog towards um, basically uh, using hydrogen as a combustible fuel for aviation huh. uh, for air, uh, aviation uh, to. the When you look at the numbers to move a passenger uh, airliner across international distances, uh, the energy is is quite large, the amount of um, uh, it almost doesn't really even come down to the actual propulsion and conversion technology. It just comes down to how much energy can you, you store on that vehicle to be able to uh, traverse those great distances. Um, hydrogen certainly has that potential. It's got the uh, highest uh, energy density per kilogram of any um, element, not necessarily by volume but um, uh, you could see that with the infrastructure at a uh, airport or international facility that you could potentially uh, use liquefied hydrogen uh, in some type of um, uh, uh, turbo turbojet or turboprop mm-hmm. type, type engine. Um, whether the fuel cell becomes the energy converter to do that or not, um, I'm not so sure on that just from the, uh, you know, conversion efficiencies and things that that we see now. Um, I think for the backup power situations where you have uh, really no limitations and uh, or you have moderate limitations in volume and weight, it makes, it makes sense. But, um, you know, we're always open if new uh, developments uh, occur uh, or new physics is discovered, then, uh, you know, that's the direction it'll go.
0: Very good. Thanks, Brian, for your insight. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to our
1: latest episode. My pleasure, Stefan. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Mobility Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.